So we're in John's gospel this morning. We read a little bit out of this last night, but I want to go back to it and consider a few more things. So if you would uh, either flip in your program or turn to the gospel of John, first chapter, uh, it's the prologue to the gospel of John. We will take our uh, reading there. Let me invite you to stand, if you would, um, and hear God's word. From the apostle John in the first chapter of his gospel, verses 1 through 14, hear now the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, how desperately it is that we need to hear this, that there, is, that there is reason in the universe, that though we don't understand what all happens all the time, we know with great and 100% confidence that it is not a haphazard series of events with neither rhyme nor reason. All things have been given to Jesus. And he has graciously revealed himself to us. He has given us the scriptures. And so this day, as we celebrate his inbreaking into time and space and into humanity, as he clothed clothed himself in flesh and came and walked among us, would we rejoice that our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend became one of us in order to rescue us because he loved us. So this morning, God, speak, we pray, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I don't know if you're like me. I I shouldn't start it that way. That never works out well. (laughs) Perhaps some of you get fascinated by how words get used. Let's try it that way. Some of us are really geeky about words and think that words matter, uh, maybe to the point that we cause marital strife because we nitpick about the precision of words. I'm not saying that's me either, but Jen's not here to negate me on that. She is going to hear that on the recording. 
That's unfortunate. The Oxford English Dictionary every year comes up with a word of the year. Now, this is designed to kind of track with how um, language is reflecting a changing world. Now, if you were paying attention to this last year, you would think that we had gone back to ancient Egypt because the word of the year was, could have easily been a hieroglyphic. It was an emoji. It was, this, it was the laughing, crying face emoji. It was the word of the year. This year was a little bit different, as many of you can readily attest. 2016 has been a little bit different. Now, before we get to the word of the year, I want to address a few of the, of the runners-up, which I think were good choices and had some merits to offer the whole equation. Here's one of the, of, of, a, of a selected list, here's one of the first runners-up that I thought was particularly nice. The word is adulting. Now, there are some that, that say that this idea of, of taking, um, taking a word like parent and making it a gerund by adding an ing to it um, is, is not exactly uh, good grammar. And yet, this is where we get parenting from. And so it's no, uh, it's no wonder then that we get adulting, to use it in a sentence. It's something like this. Man, I got up today and paid a bunch of bills, and then I went to work. And then I had to do my own laundry. Adulting is hard. Second, uh, a second one that was an interesting uh, runner-up to the word of the year. Chatbot. Now, for those of you that are outside of the technology scene, this is an automated artificial intelligence type thing that lives inside of uh, chat rooms and messenger applications and other things that can kind of help predictively anticipate your needs and move, move things along. Um, so it's a computer program designed to simulate conversation with human users, especially over the internet. Do you want Skynet? This is how you get Skynet. <laughs> it's a deep culture reference there. Thank you, for the, thank you for supporting me on that one. This other one, um, I had to look up the pronunciation of it. It is cholrophobia. Cholrophobia. This is an extreme or irrational fear of clowns. Now, let's be clear about something. There is neither an extreme or irrational fear of clowns. There is only a fear of clowns. It's all Stephen King's fault. Here's the Oxford English Dictionary's word of the year. Post-truth, an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Let me run that back for you. Post-truth, an adjective relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, 
just because this word was the word of the year doesn't mean that this phenomenon is new to 2016. In fact, this phenomenon has been around for quite some time. And the church, and especially uh, philosophers and in theological circles, we've been talking about postmodern for a while now. This idea that everything is relative, everything is as you define it, right? But what happened this year, and this is what got the attention of the lexographers for the Oxford English Dictionary, is all of a sudden now, this idea of being post-truth jumped into the mainstream, whether it be suspicion about uh, journalistic or media bias, whether it be about whether or not somebody somebody simply says things the loudest, whether or not those things are, are true or not, this word encapsulated some of the major movements that happened in the geopolitical sphere over the course of 2016. And so this morning, as we both rejoice and celebrate and remember the incarnation of Jesus, what I want to do is I want to look at this idea of truth. I want to look at this idea for just a few moments of what it means to live as followers of Jesus in a post-truth world. Because if we, if we fall for the lie that um, that there is no such thing as objective truth. We've removed God from the equation. So consider with me a few things um, uh, in, the, in our text this morning. I want to consider three things extremely briefly. I know you've heard me say that before, but honest to goodness, it's true. Um, I was giving my daughter a, a bottle at 2.45 this morning, and then she was hungry again at 4, and then the boys woke up at 5.30. So really, the, the, at the end of the day, the prayer for the sermon is, uh, let's, let's connect A to B and hope the glue that binds A to B is not heresy. That's really the, <laughs> set, the set the bar low. First thing I want to consider is where truth is found. Look at what he says. Um, John is is going very much so um, here in the vein of Mark, but even more so going back to what we see revealed to us in Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So just think about this for a second. Where truth is found, is in no other place than where truth was created. Let's be clear about something. Truth didn't exist before God. He didn't just get to it first and claim dibs. He created all things. Therefore, all things can only rightly be understood through him. This means that Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And without 
him was not anything made that was made, which means there is absolutely, positively, whether you are in computer science or quantum physics, whether you are in macroeconomics or genetic biology, whether you are in the arts or whether you are in any form of literature, there is nothing true, good, or beautiful that falls outside of the jurisdiction of God who made it all. So what that means is, if anything good, anything true, anything beautiful exists, it exists because it is created by God, belongs to God, known by God, and can only be understood through God himself. A theologian uh, from some years ago, Cornelius Van Til, talked about this idea of, um, of, of a creator and creature distinction. I'm laughing because Chip Sayers and I have had long conversations about this, and he's rolling his eyes at me right now. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, we as creatures are finite, yes? We hear Paul uh, talk about... Um, God is the potter and we are the clay. It is only up to us to be told by the creator what we are to be and how we are to be used. At the end of the day, we cannot pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and see the world, see the universe, see everything else that is going on. We can't understand it all. But this is the interesting line, isn't it? Because this was the very train of thought running through modernity, okay? This period of scientific exploration, this period of, of reason and, and understanding, the idea was that we, in fact, could understand our world completely. We could solve everything that ailed us. We could, in fact, become masters of our world. This was the idea that ran through all of, all of the things that were driving things like the space race, things like other, uh, other, other scientific endeavors that went on in the world. What our text says, on the other hand, is that Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That means that Jesus has his fingerprint on everything. We can only know what we can know or discover, uh, and we are dependent on knowledge outside of us for the complete picture. In other words, we are not God, we are not divine, and we cannot suppose divinity in order to know everything. So truth is found only in Jesus as he has been revealed to us by God the Father. So why do we need truth? Why, why, in fact, do we need truth? Look at verse 4. In him was life. Full stop. In him was life. Do you see with me what an incredibly bold claim that is? What an incredibly bold claim that is. 
almost every other world religion, that, that religion is an add-on to your life. It is a wrapper that goes around your life. It is something to, to strive or attain for in your life. But it is not, in fact, described as the sum and total of your life. And notice, I'm not saying um, aspirations. I'm not saying goals. I'm saying where you live and move and have your being. What John is saying here is that in Jesus, in this one that God has sent to earth, in him there is life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I was fascinated um, growing up by, um, by some of the concretes and absolutes in the world. Here's one of them. One of the concretes and absolutes in the world is that this is at around or near 440 hertz. If you get a spectrograph out and measure those sound waves, that note is 440 hertz. Every time. An A is an A, no matter whether you're here or on the North Pole or in Antarctica or in Australia. 440 hertz equals an A. This is what a lot of symphonies and orchestras use as a way to to use as a mooring point to tune to make sure that everybody uh, is playing in the same uh, in the in the same tonality in the same uh, uh, in the same sphere. Because when you start getting um, notes that uh, that sound the same um, but start getting a little weird, you get weird sounds like that, and it's no longer pleasant to listen to. Unless you're one of the late modern composers, at which point you said, hey, why not? Let's try it. <laughs> Looking at you, Schoenberg. Um, what happens when a musician can't hear? Right, but what if they were never able to hear at all? How do they have access to 440 hertz? If they, if they can't hear at all, if they never could hear at all, how in the world can they get to 400? They can't, right? Because that, the only way you receive that is from outside of yourself. The only way you receive that knowledge is from outside of yourself to know what that note is. When the Bible talks about darkness, and we talked about this a little bit last night, what it's really referring to is blindness, Sin blindness means that we can't see God no matter how hard we try. We can't hear God no matter how hard we try. The scandal of Christmas is that God is completely upending all of our categories. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you know what the definition of darkness is? The definition of darkness is simply an absence of light. And no matter how hard darkness, blindness would try, ultimately it cannot, will not, and will never ultimately prevail against the light of the world that is broken in in the face of Jesus Christ. 
verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Why did the world not know him? Because the world was blinded in their sin. The world could not know him. It was not simply a matter of, oh, we need to discover something. They couldn't. The faculties weren't there. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. There was a fascinating interview. I don't know if some of you, I I put this up on my um, social media a couple days ago. Um, There was a fascinating interview that uh, happened between New York Times colonist uh, Nick Kristof, who's, um, Nick is one of those guys, uh, yes, he writes for the Times, no, don't send me emails about reading the New York Times. Um, I mean, you can, that's fine, I may just ignore it. so Nick is one of those guys that is thoughtful um, and ironic and tends to be sympathetic towards Christians. He doesn't like make it a point to go out and say mean things like others do. So he sat down and had an interview with Pastor Tim Keller. Tim Keller's pa- uh, PCA pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church up in Manhattan. It's a fascinating interview to read uh, if you sit down and, and read it all uh, in terms of what it looks like to engage with someone who is skeptical of the claims of the Christian faith in, a, in the public sphere. So Christoph, right, in, right there in the interview, is saying, do I need to believe in the resurrection and the virgin birth to be a Christian? And Keller's like, well, yeah, those are kind of core to everything that we're about. But he does it in a much more uh, winsome and, and, uh, and helpful way. Here's one of the quotes, though, that happened in that um, article. Uh, Keller says to, to Christoph in the context of the interview, he says, Luke Ferry, in the go- looking at the gospel of John's account of Jesus' birth into the world, said that the power behind the whole universe was not just an impersonal cosmic principle, but a real person who could be known and loved. That scandalized Greek and Roman philosophers, but was revolutionary in the history of human thought. It led to a new emphasis of the importance of individual personhood and on the love of the on love as a supreme virtue, because Jesus was not just a great human being, but the pre-existing Creator God miraculously come to Earth as a human being. Jesus is upending all of our categories because now, all of a sudden, truth is not just this weird, abstract, external principle of just some facts that need to be understood. Truth is, in fact, a person. Truth is, in fact, a person. And it cannot be apprehended in any other way but through Jesus. Every other world religion has a God that demands that people come to them, generally either by a process of self-denial or self-righteousness. Our God came to us by sending us his son. Verses 4 through 5 remind us that Jesus, the pre-existing creator God, has come definitively into the world and that in him, only in him, is life. Everything else is darkness. And look, verse 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of what? Full of grace and truth. 
There is grace and there is truth in Jesus. Later in John's gospel, Jesus would say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the what, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. It's not by grasping a set of ideas or agreeing to a set of principles. It is by a personal relationship with Jesus that we have access to the Father. So how do we get there? How do we receive truth? It is, after all, a day in which we celebrate our creation and redemption in Jesus by what? By exchanging gifts. My children shrieking at whatever time that was. The sun wasn't out, so I don't really know. Excited about the the idea of exchanging gifts. How do we receive this gift? Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To be a follower of Jesus, it means that we recognize why he came, realize our condition, and continually receive the gift that he offers. Listen. We have to recognize that he came because of God's great love. Now, I know that it's easy in our circles, isn't it, to look at, uh, at the sinfulness of man. After all, one of the core tenets of our uh, polity, of our, of our doctrine, is, is the total depravity, the complete sinfulness of man. But before there was complete sinfulness, there was dignity. There was humanity. There was the sense that we, we, as the crown jewel of creation, were very good. I was talking with some friends some weeks ago um, about this idea of, of recognizing that we are loved by God. To say that you and I were, before the foundations of the world, loved by God. But, but do you know, do you know how my silly brain works? I look at God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit like a three-person jury. And I feel like that there was a split vote. And that someone on there was the tiebreaker. So that through the, whatever the, the, the secret counsel of God is, that God got to this point where he said, okay, I love David. But it was after a deliberation process. Because it's incredibly difficult for me to say that no, God loved me as a first order love before there was any other discussion. There was love. Before there was anything else, there was love. Now, how does, that, how does that strike with you? How does that strike when you think about what the love of God is? 
Yes, we believe in the, in the sovereignty of God. Yes, we believe that man cannot and, uh, and does not earn his salvation. Yes, we believe that we, are, that we are sinful to the core and that we were in need of rescue. And so how do you think God went about that process? Do you think he went about that process holding his nose and just kind of looking at you and saying, okay, well, I guess I'll send my son Jesus into the world? No. No. God loved you as a first order love. And when the promise came in Genesis that there would be a rescuer that would come, it was because God said, I will not lose my people. I will save my people by becoming one of my people in order to ransom my people. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. The reason that he sent Jesus was because of your helpless estate, was because of my helpless estate, was because there was no other way for divine justice to be met and for divine mercy to be shown than for Jesus to come as a substitute and a sacrifice. So listen, recognize this day that God sent Jesus into the world because he loved you as a first order love. Secondly, realize our condition. We, you and I, each one of us are, help, are the helpless and the hopeless ones. Remember I said last night, that Christmas is not for the happy ones. Christmas is for the helpless ones, and Christmas is for the hopeless ones. Christmas is for the ones, for the, for the ones who don't have the hallmark life altogether. That, this, that the, the movies and the songs are just too saccharine because it doesn't at all line up with what your experience of life has been. Christmas is for you. We're helpless in that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, not a single good thing that we can do to satisfy God's justice. And that apart from a perfect substitute and sacrifice, we are all subject to God's justice for sin. So we recognize why God sent Jesus into the world. God sent Jesus into the world because he loved his people. That we realize that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves and that we receive this gift in Christ. Christians believe that it is those who admit their weakness and need for a savior who get salvation. If access to God is through the grace of Jesus, then anyone can receive eternal life instantly. The greatest gift we can have today is that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. This means that everybody has access to God. That means the misfits and the rebels. That means those who have completely messed up all of their chances and then some. Those are the ones that God has said, you have access to me through my son, Jesus. So what does it look like to live as Christians in a post-truth world? We were sitting around the, the dinner table last night, and my, uh, my, my in-laws are in town, 
And, and my mother-in-law just kind of was musing and said, this world is changing really fast. I'm almost, I'm almost scared for my grandkids. I don't know what's going to, I don't know what the world's going to be like for them. And I said, well, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sound dismissive. But I don't believe that anything happening in this world has caught God off guard. And my, my confidence for my kids, my confidence for myself, my confidence for future generations is not, um, will the world be a safe place? But does God keep his promises? Is what God has promised true? And can you bank on it? And if that's the case, then whatever the world looks like, even if it's not the way we would hope it or wish it or idealize it, even if it's no longer safe, even if the church goes underground, even if it becomes dangerous to declare the name of Jesus, our safety and security is not in what the world looks like, but in the God who makes and keeps his promises. As we sang earlier, so may our hope and assurance be this. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Part of what it means to live as Christians in a post-truth world is to live winsomely and hopefully and kindly and justly knowing that it is not people who is our greatest problem. Sin is our greatest problem. And those who are outside of, those who are outside of Jesus have no more shot of understanding what 440 hertz sounds like on a piano than you or I did because they are blind. Their only hope is that God opens their eyes and unstops their ears and puts a new heart within them. And so we labor, but not against flesh and blood. We labor against the principalities and powers. We labor against the enemy whose, whose fate and, 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 and outcome is sure. Augustine said this, where I found truth, there I found my God, who is the truth itself. Where I found truth, there I found my God, who is truth itself.